change happens at the speed of trust. So if you are an organizational leader and you're looking to make some changes, which at this time in our society, so many organizations are needing to rethink, redesign, reframe the way they're doing business, you'll be much more successful at making those changes with the support of your staff when you have their trust and you have their trust. Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, which leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We need to change this. And in fact, My hope is that many of you listening now to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place for next generations and especially for the next generation of parents. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. If you want support from brilliant like-minded peers, join events or find out our world-class career development program, the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program, then sign up to our monthly newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. By 3rd of October, you can apply for our fellowship for ambitious working parents in the NHS. It's our first sector-specific fellowship program and also will open applications in 2023 for our cross-sector fellowship to support working parents who are ambitious in their careers. Today's podcast guest is Kami Norland. We talk about compassionate leadership and how it's not only possible, but essential to engineer compassionate organizations. Enjoy the conversation. My name is Kami Norland, and I am the CEO of Integrative Resources, which is an organization that works to strengthen professional capacity to lead with compassion. And we do this by utilizing frameworks and building uh, conversation tools uh, based on the neuroscience, uh, philosophy, and psychology of compassion. Like, why compassion, you say? (laughs) Which is often the question that I get. And that is because when you are the lens that I I tend to look at this is our brains are designed for survival and not for happiness. So we have to work to restructure the way that we spend our days and the perceptions that we have that shape our brains. So what expedites that healing process that gets us out of this state of stress where we're constantly on the lookout of threats, this could be translated into multitasking, which we spend 80% of our day in this multitasking mode, trying to juggle everything and all of our responsibilities. The quickest way to get out of that is through compassion, meaning doing something kind for yourself and kind for someone else, but starting with yourself. Mm. So that may be a quick reframe of thinking. So when we do this, we're prioritizing our mental well-being and organizations and individuals who prioritize their mental well-being flourish and they reduce their risk of chronic diseases. Interesting. 
Mm-hmm. And from speaking to you previously, I know that what you're saying is is based in in science and is founded. Well, and I'm fascinated by this because I think we all can agree compassion is probably a good thing and we all should be compassionate. We all want to be compassionate, I imagine, unless you're a sociopath. <laughs> but when you have the really hectic eye of the storm type moment, that's when it's really tough. And I know for me personally, that is when I fall down on yes. compassion. Yeah, it's really common because, again, our brains are designed to do that. There's, they're designed for survival and to keep us alive and to keep us going. And where things tend to fall apart is when we start to, we get triggered by a stressful event or an adversity. And then our brain starts to say, oh, I've experienced this before. I know the emotions that came with that. Oh, that reminds me of this other situation where I failed or where I was felt insecure. And now you've changed one situation into five situations that your brain is trying to, is recalling and remembering like, oh, that did not go well. I do not want that to happen again. And so then we have this autonomic response where our, we start to tense up, our eyeballs dilate, our shoulders go up to our ears, our so as muscle tightness, we have this physiological reaction to this amount of stress and then others perceive that amount of stress and they get triggered and they say, oh, this person is in a, in a survival mode. What do I need to do to protect myself so I survive? And is this person still trustworthy? Where can I, how can I, how can we trust each other? And because our brains are always doing that, even with individuals that we naturally trust and respect and love. Our brains just are designed that way. So when you then are in an environment where you have multiple multiple people who have been triggered by this stressful adversity or event, and then you all start spinning and then tensions go high, emotions are vulnerable and chaos ensues. Mm. That's a a very convincing explanation for and I think all the listeners probably can picture a situation where that that happened in the workplace yeah but what do you say to the people who are who say they are too busy and and they don't have time for this touchy-feely stuff what what would you say to Mm. that sort of leader who's leading a crisis as a massive team Mm. and, and and is in that stress situation but also isn't quite convinced that they should be spending time on trying to bring compassion into this. Yes. Well, this brings it into a sociological and cultural response. I think individuals who express that sentiment, which is more the norm than not, unfortunately. However, awareness is increasing. I think that response is one grounded in their own untreated, un, I should rather say uncared for traumas and grief. And that's where we tend to develop policies and protocols based on our own experiences and of our predecessors' experiences where they got burned and they don't want to get burned. So they set up policies and practices. And a lot of that is based on misogyny and patriarchy and not looking at the science perspective of this. You know, I, because this is such 
a debate at times when people say, oh, that's touchy-feely, that's the soft skills. It's not. This is based on hard science, based on the science of how our brains are wired, how it connects to our autonomic nervous system. And so once we learn this information, it's a it's a game changer. I think this information should be shared broadly um, and as much as driver's license, because it provides this the language to help us understand those moments when we are experiencing stress and how we can first identify it and then name it and then do something about it. So whether it's a reframing or if it's doing some self-care or responding appropriately. Um, and, you know, everybody knows how to take care of themselves. Everybody has self-care skills. Sometimes we just need to recognize what we're doing is self-care that may not be traditionally noted as self-care. Can you give an example? A lot of people like to, to uh, unwind at the end of the day with a glass of, of wine or a happy hour or something to quote, you know, take the edge off. And for some, this is a, a way to calm that nervous system down. So of course that can, there's balance in everything, right? That's a, a small example of self-care. Another example of self-care is taking a bubble bath or doing yoga or people have, they know what's right for themselves. So it's reminding people and creating that environment that helps support one another in doing the things that are healthful. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting that actually you're saying there are ways. I like the idea. I'm not personally a wine drinker, but I really like the idea that you're not judgmental. Yeah. About yeah. actually there. And for me, it's watching really trashy Netflix stuff that is, yeah, you sure. know, it's not inspiring, <laughs> it's not informative. But it is just, it's just something, um, it's very compassionate, I would say, to myself. But you also talk about compassionate organizations. Yeah. So again, you, I think you worked with some hospital in the US during, yes. during the pandemic, which is obviously quite a pressurized environment. What advice do you give those hospital chief execs about creating compassionate organizations? Like practically, what? What do they do? I, I know you're running year-long courses on that, but just yeah. what's the gist, if you don't mind summarizing yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say everybody is compassionate to an extent, particularly in health medical care environments. However, we get distracted and overwhelmed by the tasks at hand, particularly in high-stakes environments that are literally life and death. And one of the, the uh, tactics is to, one, identify when you are being compassionate and when people are being, when, what does this mean to be compassionate? I have seen so many mission statements that people say, oh, well, we provide compassionate care. When asked, how do you provide compassionate care? There's, it's usually left with silence. So, Having that conversation with your staff about what does compassionate care look like in this environment? How can you as an individual demonstrate compassion, meaning kindness for the act of kindness for somebody beyond the work duties? So it's it's having those conversations, identifying it, naming it, 
And that alone can be quite a process. And is there any organization that, in your view, does it really well to put compassionate leadership at the heart? Yes, yes, there are some fantastic examples of organizations that have done this. And what we see when what this looks like then is that people feel supported when they're going through their their own stressors in life because you know the, this audience knows you aren't just an employee you are an individual bringing yourself to work and it's time away from your family and so it's having those conversations real conversations with your colleagues about what's going on in your life and what i see a lot is when people are experiencing grief in their life from the illness of a family member to the death of a family member this is people tend to double down on work they want to distract themselves this could also be when they're diagnosed with an illness themselves people tend to do more i fell to this as well when i was experiencing deaths within my family and going through a divorce what did i do I joined every single board I possibly could. I dedicated myself I, um, to work. I did everything I possibly could. I became the, well, I was already the classic overachiever. Now I am recovering <laughs> overachiever. Yeah. So I tried to dedicate so much of my time to serve as a distraction. But what then that leads to burnout, that leads to illnesses. And so as a supervisor, or I would recommend that individuals who are experiencing these types of adversities, that you dial back the expectation of their productivity. So they will have time to manage other aspects of their life because the, the stress will result in illness and further absenteeism down the road. So why not approach it from the start, establish a what I call a, a, coord a care coordination team amongst the amongst the office to provide that support for individuals who are experiencing that. So that may look like people taking on your colleagues taking on some of your extra work. That may look like when grief hits, because it doesn't just last for the two hours that you, four hours that you uh, get excused from the office for a funeral. This lasts, uh, sometimes it can last a lifetime, but it's more severe, of course, in, in the beginning, more intense. So when grief hits, do you have the autonomy to step away and express your emotions, move through it and come back to work with the support of colleagues who are your friends in that work environment? I tell you, when you have that kind of work environment where people trust each other to that level, your customers know that. <laughs> your The people stay, you're happy, and that radiates across the work environment and into customers. And of course, that translates into sales or whatever <laughs> your industry is. Interesting. Luckily, so far, I haven't been so affected by grief yet, but what you're talking about resonates because a lot of our listeners will go through very intense periods when there are particular changes with their children. Yes. So quite often in the UK, we're very lucky. We get very long maternity leaves up to a year. 
sorry yeah. to make any <laughs> listeners feel <laughs> jealous. Also, the, when the child starts primary school, it's usually mm. a really intense time and, and you just need that extra support. And I think what's interesting about what you're saying is that the compassionate organization becomes comes into its own in those moments of pressure. It's probably not the day-to-day, let's have a cup of tea and give each other a hug. Nothing against that, yes. that's your thing, but actually it's, right. it's about responding in those really big crisis moments. And I love these, I mean, not that returning from work in any way is, is similar to uh, an illness, but it's also a moment of transition, the moment of, of massive change. Yes. And, and I think that's where, where that, that care comes in. Hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of resilience as well, is how quickly you're able to reframe your thinking, reframe the situation. And being that we are social creatures, that we, it is not survival of the fittest, it's rather survival of the kindest. We naturally flourish when we know that we are experiencing that, that love from colleagues, from family and friends. Mm. So there are some people who are more task oriented and others who are more people oriented. And I was yeah. just interested in your views. If you are a more task oriented person, how can you show that compassion in the moment if you're not naturally the person who immediately empathizes with your colleagues? Yeah. So some tasks that you could do. Yeah, you can break these down in, into protocols depending upon your, your role. So that may mean, oh, if I am a manager of a, a team and I see that they're going through something, can I establish some, you know, allocate some time for them to to step out and do some self-care? Five, sometimes it's five minutes, you know, that's all you need. Uh, in fact, I've got a little tip <laughs> that I'm happy to share. Our brains can stay focused for about eight minutes without them wandering and thinking about other topics. So, but we can increase this, that amount of time of focus with intentional practice. And those intentional practices are breathing exercises. It is demonstrating actively actively demonstrating compassion, it is expressing appreciation. So when you do those three things, you start to reduce your risk. I'm really simplifying this, but you start to reduce your risk of chronic diseases and because that's an inflammatory response and you start to improve relationships as well. So thinking about those three things and applying them for two minutes, about every, I would say 15 minutes will radically increase your attention span. Interesting. And how do you do it practically? So for someone who hears this, thinks, hmm, sounds quite interesting. Where would they start? I would set a timer on your clock, maybe every 15 minutes, and then you take a two minute break. And during that two minute break, you either write a thank you note to yourself, to somebody who you appreciate in the moment, or maybe this is just you're thinking about people that you appreciate or you do something kind for one another even it's I'm going to hold open the door for people at the main entrance for (laughs) for two minutes and and greet people with a hello it could also be looking for novelty because the older we get the harder it is for our brains to find a novelty and so looking for something with the eyes of an artist or the eyes of a child. As parents, you see 
children's minds just open up when they experience novelty. And so we get to relive that with our children. So tapping into that sense of novelty, looking at something in your office with a fresh eyes, with new eyes, maybe studying the color of it as the way the sun hits it differently. So when you do those things for two minutes, what's happening is that you are starting to rewire your brain out of that fight or flight response and in, in the amygdala and into that prefrontal cortex where this is where the state of flow and emotional memories are attached. And so then you are able to be a more creative, divergent thinker. So the next time a stressful event triggers your brain, you start to create an, a new highway <laughs> into your brain circuits to say, ah, oh, I don't have to react with that same constant response that I have of either fight or flight or freeze, but rather, oh, there's many ways that I can respond to this situation. So doing this for two minutes every 15 minutes is seems like a lot, but it is, I like to think of this as chocolate milk. You already have a full glass of tasks at hand and you're just sweetening up your tasks that you have to do. Mm, I like it. And do you have any thoughts about, is it possible to engineer an organization to become more compassionate from the top? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it starts with this base knowledge of how we are wired as humans. And then taking a look at where are the stressors that are happening within the organization that are preventable. Also looking at where are those amazing strengths within the organization, those treasures that we can leverage to get us through what has worked in the past that has helped us navigate hardships in the past. So you start to have conversations about those strengths and then you take a look at how can you use those strengths to address some of those stress for stressors. And sometimes a lot of these preventable stressors can be easily resolved with a conversation with a colleague. And because we have a tendency to create workarounds or micromanage too much or, you know, so having real conversations about what's causing us stress that we can prevent is, uh, is really helpful. You are also a resilience expert. So I just want to pick your brain on a slightly different topic, which is, I guess, where resilience is malleable. Mm. And, and in a way, what you're telling me, actually, I should probably answer the question myself, because you're, you're saying that if you are compassionate, it's going to make you much more resilient to stress. Yes, absolutely. So I have an agenda, which is I want to have more of the listeners many of whom are women with young children, to continue to progress up the career ladder so that we have more gender equality at the top, as I mentioned to you a number of times before. Yes. And I'm just thinking, so if anyone listens to you and they think, well, actually, I'm very, very passionate about my career. I want to get to a senior role, but it's just too stressful to hold down a really senior job and at the, more, at the same time, look after your young kids. Do you have any thoughts about that or any responses? Go for it. <laughs> you can do it all. And how you can do it all is knowing that you are not alone. And that in order to accomplish this, having a network, a team of support 
is going to be really important because when we are ex experiencing stress, what we tend to our default mode is to say, I'm the only one, I'm alone. I'm the only one who is experiencing this. And that feels really isolating. And that isolation leads us to feel more stressed. So when you have a, a team of support, both at home and at the workplace, that can help you navigate your career more successfully. Mm. Absolutely. And if you, so if you feel that you're really pressurized, you know, so at your job, um, and let's say you have been successful and you got to this very senior role and there is a lot of pressure, I guess I'm just thinking, I, I'm thinking back to a specific conversation with someone who said, look, I just think I'm not resilient enough for this. Is resilience something that is malleable and you can learn based on the science, the evidence, or is it something that you can, that is fixed and, and is not really changeable? Mm. So this is yes and <laughs> is the response to this. So resilience is malleable. Our brains are malleable because hyperplasticity is the word that we use to indicate how our brains are shifting from that fight or flight response to that state of flow and compassion uh, you, because you're creating a new neural network. However, there is a tendency to think that resilience is just about self-care and just about the individual. And that's a, a fallacy because you can have the right mindset. You can do everything, you know, according to the science. However, if you don't have an environment that supports you in this approach, supports you in thinking healthfully, then being that we are social creatures, we will either succumb to the negative toxic culture or we will quit. So this is where the importance of having that organization focus on compassion and focus on prioritizing mental well-being is so valuable. So you can retain your talent. Mm. And in your experience, is it worth to try to influence your manager to be more compassionate if they're not? Or actually, should you just decide to let it be and to leave and find a different manager? I resign mm -hmm. from your job. That is, that's a personal decision that would be nuanced with the, your manager. I think it's having that conversation and being honest with yourself of, what are you willing to accept? And can you, do you have the support systems outside of the work environment that can help get you through the work environment that is toxic? Or if it's too much, if it's too toxic, too many forces, negative forces coming at you, then I would recommend you do some serious self-reflection and think about what your values are and how you want to lead your life and have have that real conversation with yourself thank you Kami. that's excellent advice we are coming towards the end of our podcast and i would love for you to summarize two or three things through three practical steps someone can take this week who wants to bring more compassionate into their work with their employees so two or three practical things someone can take 
wants to be com- more compassionate as a leader with their employees this this week? Mm. Yes, thank you. I would say first listen to the wisdom of your own body. If you're experiencing tension, work on self-care to relax that. Listen to your employees. Ask them how they're doing, if they're experiencing high levels of stress, adversities, grief. Provide them with that safe space to have the conversation and the trust with you to talk about it or have the time to have a space to just do perhaps even individual reflection, but to have that autonomy to make that space. And to the third tip would be to pay attention to the word choices that you're selecting. Pay attention to the nonverbal cues, the postures, the gestures, the facial expressions of yourself and of your colleagues that may indicate stress. And if you're if you're seeing examples of this, then how can you show extra kindness? Because everybody's going through something and can put up a really brilliant mask. So just being compassionate and kind to one another instead of jumping to these conclusions that we have mm. a tendency to do. Mm. That's excellent advice. And it's interesting how, yeah, it, it is interesting how in a way it's so simple, but it makes such an impact. You and I, we had a bit of a back and forth when we were trying to arrange this podcast because my little one was was ill and I cancelled at quite short notice number of time. I still remember how supported I felt by your lovely message. And I think... It, it's just it, sometimes these responses of kindness in really hectic moments, they stay with you forever, don't they? In a really yes. positive way. Yes. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. I agree. And that's where you start to build the rapport and you build trust and change happens at the speed of trust. So if you are an organizational leader and you're looking to make some changes, which at this time in our society, so many organizations are needing to rethink, redesign, reframe the way they're doing business, you'll be much more successful at making those changes with the support of your staff when you have their trust and you have their trust. Well said. I was going to finish, but my colleague will tell me off for going too long. But I just want to ask one quick question on this new topic of trust that you brought up. What is the best way to build trust with the people you lead? To not be judgmental. Always give people the benefit of the doubt. With that lens, when you start to view the world through this lens of compassion, that everybody's going through something hard, everybody is suffering some way, then it triggers this response of kindness. And that response of kindness is builds trust again. And without trust, we feel alone. Well said. Where can people find out more about you and about your work? Oh, thank you. Yes, you can go to resiliencysource.org. Or I also am a co-founder of the Elevate, the Global Elevate Compassion Coalition, which is a group of organizations all over the, the world having conversations about what does it mean to bring compassion into their workplace. And this is 
from healthcare to education to justice organizations and communities at large. And so we have, that is at elevatecompassion.org. And we have free conversations on the first Friday of every month at 10.30 Central Time US. Mm, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much, mm. Kami. It was fantastic yeah. to have you on the podcast. Such a great opportunity to chat to you properly, finally. <laughs> yes, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for inviting me and, and sharing. It's such a delight to work with fellow game changers. Mm -hmm. Definitely. <laughs> Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you might also like episode 53, where I talk to Michele Sanini about making the workplace more human-centric in really innovative ways. If this has been helpful to you in any way, then please do join our newsletter for practical tips and insight on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. If you are someone who believes in our mission and who is keen to support others to progress their careers whilst enjoying their young children, then I'd love for you to get more involved. One way to, of doing so is on our website. You can sign up to the event, leadersplus.org.uk. If you're very senior, you can also apply to become a senior leader mentor. And if you are a parent with children between the ages of zero and 11, definitely consider applying for our award-winning fellowship program. In addition to our existing cross-sector fellowship, I'm very excited to say that we are launching a version this autumn for parents in the NHS who want to progress their careers alongside bringing up young children. During the fellowship, you'll get access to some really amazing peers who share your desire to progress your career, who are ambitious but also love their kids. You'll get access to inspirational role models. You'll get support with practical challenges such as workload or saying no. You'll develop your vision and make a plan for your career and family life. And all of that will be based on research around what causes career progression. So you can apply that in your own lives while looking after young children. And there are always hard to find spaces available. So if you are in financially challenging circumstances, then please don't hesitate applying. I was very keen from the very start that we make sure the fellowship is accessible to everyone. You can find out more on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash NHS fellowship. See you next week.